The following broadcast is brought to you by the AHIMA 22 Global Conference. If you are listening, you and your team belong at the AHIMA 22 Global Conference, October 9th through the 12th in Columbus, Ohio, for networking connections that will last a lifetime. Find out more about AHIMA 22. Register today at ahima.org. Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for September 12, 2022. Here's today's rundown. A national debate is raging across America about the term medical necessity. A search is underway for a definition that brings providers and payers to a mutual understanding, a consensus for a simple yet complicated issue. Physician advisor Dr. Tim Brundage has that story. Also today, private equity firms are expanding their presence in healthcare. Will their focus on the bottom line infringe on quality and service at their acquisitions? False claims attorney Mary Inman reports on this emerging trend. We'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, Matthew Albright, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Today is a big news day for us here at Monitor Monday. We have two lead stories to report. Dr. Tim Brunge will be reporting on medical necessity, and later in this broadcast, famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman will be reporting on the growing presence of private equity firms into healthcare. But first, we begin, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. You know, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that one of the recovery auditors had expanded their horizons and is performing audits for commercial payers. Well, recently, I was reviewing some denials received by a hospital from several national insurers, and every single one of them had the logo of the insurer on the left side and the Cotivity logo on the right side. It appears Cotivity is absolutely going crazy with their audits. Now, let me be clear. It's certainly within the rights of these insurers to outsource their audits, but it is also crucial for you to track these. Review your insurance contracts and see if there are limits on how many cases can be audited. I suspect that Cotivity will not hesitate to audit as many of your records as they can, and they'll likely have no knowledge of any limits in your contracts. And if you're wondering, in the stack we were reviewing, the vast majority were sepsis clinical validation denials. I doubt anyone is surprised by that. Also, if you listen to ICD-10 Monitor on Tuesdays, tomorrow you're going to hear Colleen Deegan talk about the changes to the 2023 Evaluation and Management Codes for patient visits in the hospital setting. We have known about these proposed changes for over a year, and they were finalized by the AMA, who owns the CPT codes, this July. Yet, when I asked at a recent meeting with a group of hospitalists, they had no idea these changes were coming. During the same visit, I did some chart reviews, and just like every other hospital in the country, their progress notes were loaded with information that was copy and pasted simply to meet the current coding guidelines. Now, maybe the hospital's plan is to treat these doctors like children before Christmas, hiding their gifts so they won't be tempted to start using them before January 1st. And I'll admit, though, these doctors were absolutely giddy when they heard they can stop asking about the family history and octogenarians and documenting exam elements that they may have glanced at but really didn't examine. But as Colleen will discuss, the guidelines for medical decision-making will need to be taught to them at some point. 
I'll also note these changes are wonderful, but as I'll discuss in an article that Chuck will be publishing later this week, they blew it when it comes to visit coding for some hospitalized outpatients. So keep an eye on your email for that article. Finally, a thank you to Deborah, who has a knack of sending me the strangest things. Last week, she notified me of a MAC audit of podiatrists where they were looking for the documentation to prove the patients receiving foot care that was indicated and covered for their chronic illness like diabetes actually saw the physician managing that qualifying condition within the last six months and the date of that visit. She was also seeing audits of cataract extraction documentation, but only of the second eye. Keep them coming, Deborah. And back to you, Chuck. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning and hello and happy Rack Monitor Monday. How many of you listeners have undergone more than one audit? What about more than one audit for the same years or dates of service? I've noticed that a lot of auditors are doing what I would call double dipping. They are attempting to recoup monies twice for the same date of service, for the same procedure, and consumer. Now, obviously, this is not allowed and it's easily defendable, but what if you never notice? This occurs especially with extrapolated audits. The universes can be so large and encompass so many dates of services that a provider may not catch the overlap. Plus, the audits may be from two different companies. Your attorneys and or your statistical experts that you hire to debunk the extrapolation can check for overlap as well. Next, I want to talk about managed care, which has become prevalent in about 40 states now. Capitated managed care is the dominant way in which states deliver services to Medicaid enrollees. These MCOs are generally private companies tasked to manage Medicaid dollars for their state. Supervision of their actions is limited or sometimes barren. Even though these MCOs may have their own contracts with providers, those contracts cannot circumvent federal law. However, when you sign these MCO contracts, you have no bargaining power. These are boilerplate. While the federal regulations dictate that you as a provider should have all the appeal rights for adverse decisions that your state in particular offers, many times these MCO contracts include arbitration clauses. An arbitration clause removes you from the appeal process owed to you and forces you to arbitrate, which is a much more expensive litigation route. More and more, I'm having to fight the arbitration clause in the contract just to follow the normal appeal process of whatever state we are in. Each state has an administrative law process, procedure, and administrative courts with judges. The administrative courts are the courts to, quote, police state agencies, including each state's Medicaid agency, and that includes the MCOs contracted with the state agency. The correct venue for provider Medicaid appeals is in administrative court, not arbitration. The same is true for Medicare provider appeals. There is an administrative process for appeals. So I don't know why these MCOs or MACs are adding in these arbitration clauses, but it definitely puts providers between a rock and a hard place. 
So check your contract. See if you have it. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Matthew Albright, Dr. Tim Brendan, who's standing by to report lead story number one. That's about medical necessity. And later in the broadcast, famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is going to report a lead story number two. That one is on the private equity firms in healthcare. This is Monday, it's September the 12th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You're invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join their effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use, the results of their latest physician advisor survey, and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday morning, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, before the Labor Day holiday, I did a segment about local coverage determinations and how they are not binding. My friend and client, Beth, sent a question we didn't have time to address. What about national coverage determinations, or NCDs? In particular, she was asking about a national coverage determination for low-dose CT scans, but let's apply the question generally. Are NCDs binding? The answer is a wonderful illustration of how complicated healthcare regulation can be. I was very close to saying, yes, NCDs are binding in a way that LCDs are not. But while that answer would be technically accurate, it would also be grossly misleading. While NCDs are binding, the way that most of them are constructed means that they don't functionally limit Medicare coverage in the way that most people assume. To understand why, it's helpful to read the foreword of the Medicare National Coverage Determination Manual, which is really the only binding manual. So where an item, service, etc. is stated to be covered, but such coverage is explicitly limited to specific indications or specified circumstances, all limitations of coverage on the item or services, because they don't meet those specified conditions or circumstances, uh, are based on 1862A1 of the Act. Where coverage of an item or service is provided for specific indications or circumstances, but is not explicitly excluded for others, or where the item or service is mentioned, I'm sorry, is not mentioned at all in the CMS systems, the Medicare contractor is to make the coverage determination in consultation with its medical staff and with CMS where appropriate, based on law, regulation, rulings, and general program instructions. Now, I know it's a bit hard to follow this language when read aloud, 
But basically it means that unless an NCD specifically forbids coverage for a particular service, coverage is still possible. When you look at an NCD, look for a section entitled Nationally Non-Covered Indications. Many of them say NA or non-applicable. And if that's true, um, then there's guaranteed coverage for the beneficiary when they satisfy the listed indications. But if the situation doesn't meet the indication listed, there still might be coverage. It's determined on a case-by-case -case basis using medical necessity, as we're going to talk about during one of our two lead stories. For example, the NCD for implantable cardiac devices, or uh, ICDs, make that implantable cardiac defibrillators, lists six different ways that a patient can qualify. But the fact that a patient has a condition that isn't listed, or perhaps they don't quite meet one of those listed conditions, they were maybe uh, not quite 40 days post-MI, does not disqualify the person from coverage or making that a positive, they're still eligible for coverage. It's only when the NCD lists certain circumstances that cause care to be non-covered that the NCD is a binding notice of non-coverage. There was a large national investigation based on the ICD-NCD years ago, and many hospitals needlessly settled, paying refunds and penalties for services that were totally coverable. Their counsel had failed to understand how NCDs work. So Chuck, I really like the song Invisible by Alison Moyer, where she sings, You've got me so confused, and there's words I could use, but I'm afraid to say them. Hopefully that's not true right now, but if it is, you can reach out to me on the phone, and I'll do my best not to, as happens to Ms. Moyer, let it ring and ring. Back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is Senior Healthcare Consultant Timothy Ferguson. Timothy, good morning, and what do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Thank you, Chuck. Since September is National Suicide Prevention Month, I felt it was relevant to cover an important related topic. So this past March, I spoke about the State of the Union Address with aims to tackle many of the mental health issues that are occurring in our country. Specifically, there was a targeted effort to expand 988, yes, like 911, the dedicated line for suicide and crisis support and interventions. On July 16, 2022, the FCC transitioned the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number from the cumbersome 1-800 number that likely no one remembers to a simple three-digit to ensure 24-7 support for all mental health-related distress issues. So let's talk a little bit about the, how this all began. The road to fruition of this 988 number first started in 2005 when the National Suicide Prevention Hotline was established and its first year received over 46,000 calls. With the growing concern of mental health in the United States and the staggering statistics, in August 2019, the FCC partnered with SAMHSA, SAMHSA 
the Department of VA, and the North American Numbering Council to release a report recommending that the national hotline change its number to something coordinated and memorable, similar to 911. In July 2020, the dedicated 988 number was created. However, as you recall, we were in the middle of COVID, pick your variant, uh, and really missed the announcement on 988. So in October 20. 20, the National Suicide Hotline Designation Act was signed, incorporating specific support for the new name Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, and made this service dedic a dedicated line for veterans in crisis. The following year, 988 was adapted to serve at-risk communities in crisis, including youth and those with disabilities. Then in 2021, SAMHSA reported in that calendar year of 2020 that the Lifeline had received 3.6 million calls, chats, and texts. In 2022, the line was opened and open to anyone and everyone across the country via phone, text, for dispatched mental health triage and support. Per SAMHSA's report in 2020 usage, it appears that the providers working the 988 line were able to manage about 85% of the calls, 56% of the texts, and 30% of the chats. I was a little concerned by this data, so you could imagine calling 911 and being placed on hold or not having anyone answer you. It's, it's a little disconcerting. So this is why HHS recently released and dedicated $432 million to ensure that the network, it's, the calls are always answered. There's a network of over 200 agencies across the country answering these calls, providing dedicated support via call, text, or chat. And this also includes scaling up crisis centers, backup capacity, and additional linguistic and translation services. So please check out the link in my article this week, which is providing and includes printable and marketing materials regarding 988 to share with your communities and healthcare organizations to spread the word. So I ask our listeners today, how familiar are you with the 988 crisis line? Yes, I'm aware of the 988 crisis line. Yes, I'm aware and there's marketing in my community to utilize this instead of 911 for those issues. I am somewhat aware, or no, this is new to me. And back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And we're going to have the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Up next, the Monitor Monday legislative update with Matthew Albright. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic health care payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning, Chuck. A number of recent studies illustrate that the healthcare industry delivered some healthcare services better during the pandemic than it did before the pandemic. So a question, are we going to lose something if we go back to the way things were before the state of emergency? A couple of examples, the Biden administration has announced that it plans to shift the costs for COVID shots and treatment away from the government and have commercial health plans and the patients themselves pick up the tab. 
First, according to some experts, the move to shift the cost to commercial plans and patients will likely increase premiums and out-of-pocket costs for members of those commercial plans. But beyond just shifting the price, the initiative is more broadly intended to be a transition from the emergency posture of the pandemic to return to routine policies with regard to vaccines, including narrowing the places where you can get vaccinated and a return to restricting the medical professionals that are allowed to provide vaccines. That is, getting your vaccines from pharmacies or mass vaccination sites will soon be a thing of the past. According to a study in Health Affairs, the returning restrictions on vaccination sites of service and provider types are steps back in terms of access to vaccinations that many adults found during the pandemic. Instead of making COVID vaccination access look like all other vaccinations, the authors of the study think that the population should have the same access to all vaccinations as we did for the COVID vaccines during the pandemic. And aside, in a statement that illustrates how far we've come in the terminology we use, the White House now says that COVID could now be treated more like the flu, with an annual shot offered once a year. On the telehealth front, in August, JAMA Psychiatry published a study that was subsequently reviewed and broadcast by CMS. The study found that expansion of telehealth services during the pandemic resulted in a reduced risk of opioid overdoses. The study also found that expanded access to treatment due to telehealth helped access to underserved populations, leading to fewer negative outcomes. According to one author of the study, the expanded access to health telehealth services could have a longer-term positive impact if continued. On the other hand, another recent analysis finds that telemedicine could exacerbate disparities for people with physical impairments and disabilities, such as visual impairments. According to a health affairs analysis, those with visual impairments struggle with navigating telemedicine portals because the portals are not built with visual impairment in mind. For example, many telehealth quarters can only be controlled with a mouse. Chuck, new studies on the pandemic are coming out every week that analyze the positives and negatives of the delivery of healthcare during the state of emergency. Going forward, lawmakers will be charged and challenged with keeping what worked and tossing or improving what didn't. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Matthew, very much. That was Matthew Albright, Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And coming up, the first of our two lead stories, this one about medical necessity and later in the broadcast, one on the emergence of private equity in healthcare. But now is the time for the results of the day's Modern Monday Listener Survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. Thank you. So I asked our audience, how familiar are you with the 988 crisis line? It looks like we have about... 26% of our users say, yes, I'm aware. Only 12 to 13% is saying it's actually being marketed in in their communities. Um, And then a staggering kind of 39, about 39% says, no, this is new to them. So uh, definitely check out just the links in my article that comes out that has all the information. So it can, especially with this now being, this month being Suicide Prevention Month, it might be a good time to let your patients and customers and community know about 988, that they can call instead of 911. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much for your survey. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by.
Are you ready to create a better world where health is transformed by data and information advances? Then you belong at the AHIMA 22 Global Conference, October 9th through the 12th in Columbus, Ohio. Join over 3,000 innovative healthcare professionals for thought-provoking workshops and networking connections that will last a lifetime. Imagine a better world where health information is transformed by data, and you are at the center, recognized for improving lives because you made sure that the data in any healthcare record was trusted. Find out how to make this happen at AHIMA 22, where you will be convinced that data is the new medicine, and the work you do is vital. Register today at the American Health Information Management Association website. That's ahima.org. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, it's a big news day for us here at Monitor Monday. We have two lead stories to report. Lead story number one, the vexing topic of medical necessity and the need for a consensus definition. That story is going to be reported by Dr. Tim Brundage. And next in our broadcast rundown, the emergence of private equity firms into healthcare. That's going to be reported by Mary Inman. Here now reporting lead story number one, medical necessity, is the CEO and physician advisor for the Brundage Group, Dr. Tim Brundage. Thank you for the honor of participating in Monitor Monday, Chuck. I appreciate being included in national healthcare discussion. Today, we'll start by discussing medical necessity. Let's start with some definitions. First, healthcare.gov defines medical necessity as healthcare services or supplies needed to diagnose or treat an illness, injury, condition, disease, or its symptoms that meets accepted standards of medicine. Pretty straightforward, right? CMS.gov glossary defines medical necessity as services or supplies that are proper and needed for the diagnosis or treatment of your medical condition, are provided for the diagnosis, direct care, and treatment of your medical condition, meet the standards of good medical practice in the local area, and aren't mainly for the convenience of you or your doctor. Doctors and patients wouldn't do unnecessary things for convenience, would we? Unfortunately, there isn't a single definition because there are just too many variables. Advanced age, baseline organ dysfunction, individual physiologic response. Take a 68-year-old with coronary artery disease, baseline stable angina, heart failure, and then add acute blood loss anemia. This may be life-threatening. However, the same acute blood loss anemia in a young woman after cesarean section would just get iron pills. Hence, MCG and Interqual essentially use different definitions of medical necessity for every condition and they cannot properly consider patient complexity. Now, let's turn to medical necessity in contract language of payer-provider contracts. As you might imagine, a massive issue is the lack of consensus about the medical necessity between providers and payers, as one party always wants the control over the dollars at risk. As an example, in contract negotiations, one hospital provider proposes defining medical necessity as a service ordered by a participating physician that is customarily recognized as appropriate in the treatment of the member's diagnosed illness or injury by the American Medical Association. The decision as to whether a service or supply is medically necessary for the purposes of payment rests with the attending physician. No way, said the payer, and suggested services based on nationally accepted utilization review standards commonly and customarily recognized as appropriate in the treatment of the member's diagnosed illness, injury, or condition. But guess who controls the decision on which companies will review the nationally accepted utilization review standards? 
Yup, you guessed it, the payer. No thanks, said the hospital provider. So the provider added, the decision as to whether medical or allied goods, services are medically necessary for the purposes of payment by the participating payer rests with the participating provider. Nope, said the payer with a chuckle and made the following suggestion. Healthcare services or products that are provided to a patient for the purposes of preventing, diagnosing, or treating an illness, injury, disease, or its symptoms in a manner that is in accordance with generally accepted standards of medical practice. Generally accepted standards of medical practice are standards that are based on credible scientific evidence published in peer-reviewed medical literature generally recognized by the relevant medical community. If no credible scientific evidence is available, then standards that are based on physician specialty society recommendations or professional standards of care. Nope, this one didn't lead to consensus either because each party wants control over the dollars at risk. And as we know, money drives behavior. Money drives behavior of the doctor, the hospital provider, and the payer. None are innocent in all of this. The one who's left behind, of course, is the patient. And that is the complexity of medical necessity in our present healthcare system. Thank you for allowing me to share my opinion. Now back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Dr. Tim Brundage. Tim is the CEO and the physician advisor for the Brundage Group. Now reporting lead story number two is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. And Mary begins the first of a series on the emergence of private equity firms into healthcare. And good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. The influence of private equity investments in healthcare remains a hot topic. In this year's State of the Union, President Biden mentioned how private equity ownership of nursing homes has negatively impacted care, a topic the Government Accountability Office is currently researching and will report on later this fall. Last March, the House Ways and Means Subcommittee on Oversight convened a hearing examining private equity's expanded role in the U.S. healthcare system. As political pressure has grown, so too has enforcement activity from the Department of Justice and certain attorney general's offices. Last November on Monitor Monday, I reported on two major settlements between the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, DOJ, and private equity firms which highlighted the exposure PE firms face under the False Claims Act for the actions of the healthcare companies in their portfolio, as well as for their active management of such healthcare entities. Today, I'm going to survey all of the existing government prosecutions against private equity for their ownership of healthcare companies, which includes four major settlements and one ongoing case, and I'll explore the trends and lessons learned therefrom. First, in, Jan in September 2019, DOJ settled the False Claims Act lawsuit with private equity firm Warden, Lewis, and Hayden and the compounding pharmacy it managed, Diabetic Care, um, for $21.3 million regarding allegations of a kickback scheme to generate referrals to TRICARE patients. The private equity firm held a controlling stake in Diabetic Care Pharmacy and managed DCR on behalf of its investors. According to the government's press release, RLH allegedly knew of and agreed with the plan to pay kickbacks to the marketers to create prescription referrals to DCR, and that RLH provided the funds used to finance the kickbacks. RLH partners were controlling officers of the pharmacy, and according to pleadings in the case, RLH 
hired the CEO and required that CEO to run all major decisions past RLH. RLH was no mere passive investor, but also played an active management role, including in day-to-day operations. The government's complaint alleges that RLH was deeply involved in the strategy and management of diabetic care pharmacy, and in particular, exerted considerable influence over a number of the alleged bad acts, including, for example, providing cash to pay the unlawful kickbacks. The case was brought by two whistleblowers who were former employees of the compounding pharmacy. Second, in November 2020, DOJ settled the false claims that case with private equity firm The Gores Group and Theracos, the drug and device manufacturer it owned, for $11.5 million total, $1.5 million of which was paid by the PE firm. For Theracos's alleged promotion of two drug device systems for unapproved use in pediatric patients. After acquiring Theracos in 2012, The Gores Group set about making significant changes to Theracos's to Theracos, partnering with the management team, redesigning the manufacturing process, significantly increasing its investment in clinical activities, and hiring its new CEO and COO. A level of active management of Theracos that allegedly gave the Gores Group knowledge of the continued promotion of unapproved uses of the drug systems. This matter was brought by a whistleblower who was a sales representative for Theracos. Third, in June 2021, a federal judge denied a private equity firm's motion to dismiss in another false claims act suit brought by a whistleblower regarding INSYS Therapeutics. The judge found that the whistleblower sufficiently alleged that the PE firm was providing management oversight and strategic guidance for the operations of its portfolio company. Thus, the court refused to dismiss the matter in favor of the PE firm. Fourth, in July 2021, DOJ settled an FDA case with private equity firm Anchor Holdings LP and the EEG testing company Alliance Family of Companies for $15.3 million total, $1.8 million of which was paid by Anchor, regarding an alleged kickback scheme where physicians were given free testing. DOJ asserted that the private equity firm learned of the kickbacks based on due diligence it performed before acquiring a minority interest in Alliance and gaining two seats on its board of directors. It failed to take action to stop the fraud and perpetrated the misconduct by its ongoing management of Alliance. This matter was also brought by a whistleblower. Fifth and finally, in October 2021, the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office settled a matter under the Massachusetts False Claims Act with PE firm HIG Capital and its portfolio company South Bay Mental Health Center for $25 million. The matter involved allegations that South Bay Mental Health Center, owned by HIG, was using unlicensed, unqualified, and unsupervised employees. The settlement resolves allegations that HIG and its executives, Scanlon and Sheehan, knew that South Bay Mental Health Center was providing unlicensed, unqualified, and unsupervised services in violation of regulatory requirements and caused false claims to continue to be submitted to MassHealth by failing to adopt recommendations to bring SMBHC into compliance. HIG held a majority of seats on the company's board of directors, and Scanlon and Sheehan each served as CEO of SBMHC. Once again, the matter was brought by whistleblower Christine Martino-Fleming, who served as coordinator of staff development at the center. Overall, as these cases show, the key to False Claims Act liability for private equity is when the private equity investors move beyond a mere passive investment in a healthcare entity and move forward in an operational capacity where the PE firm either actively makes 
decisions or is knowledgeable about the decisions healthcare entities take or fail to take and supports them. Since each of these five cases originated by whistleblowers, it's also important to note the influential role whistleblowers have played in bringing these frauds to light. The massive proliferation of private equity investment and management in healthcare to the tune of $151 billion in 2021 alone requires scrutiny and whistleblowers serve as a line of defense protecting patients and taxpayers from fraudulent schemes. That's it for me. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner of the law firm Constantine Cannon. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Dr. Tim Brundage, who reported the lead story number one on medical necessity, and famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman, who reported the lead story number two on the emergence of private equity firms into healthcare. And remember, you can listen to all of Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do rate us, give us a review. And one more thing before we go, be sure to join me tomorrow for another live edition of Talk to Tuesday at 10 Eastern. That's when we continue our series on the 2023 E&M changes with Colleen Deegan. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. <laughs>